Garden Basics with Farmer Fred is brought to you by Smart Pots, the original, lightweight, long-lasting fabric plant container. It's made in the USA. Visit smartpots.com slash Fred for more information and a special discount. That's smartpots.com slash Fred. Welcome to the Garden Basics with Farmer Fred podcast. If you're just a beginning gardener or you want good gardening information, well, you've come to the right spot. Today, we have a wide-ranging discussion with nationally famous TV gardener Joe Lample about his new book, The Vegetable Gardening Book. And we'll have cool season gardening tips, too. But we also venture into the warm season garden when he talks about his tomato cages, which are built to look good and last a lifetime. In the question and answer segment, America's favorite retired college horticulture professor, Debbie Flower, has warnings worth heeding if you're going to be building a raised garden bed out of cinder blocks. We're podcasting from Barking Dog Studios here in the beautiful Abutilon jungle in suburban purgatory. It's the Garden Bay. With Farmer Fred podcast, and we're brought to you today by Smart Pots and Dave Wilson Nursery. Let's go. It's cool season vegetable planting time. What are you going to plant? Well, let's get some tips. We are talking with Joe Lample. If the name sounds familiar, Joe has been on TV. He has a garden podcast. He's done a lot, and he has a new book out called The Vegetable Gardening Book, Your Complete Guide to Growing an Edible Organic Garden from Seed to Harvest. And reading about you, Joe, I I am impressed. It's like uh, you are uh, my brother by another mother. (laughs) I should say my... You're my younger, more industrious brother by another mother. That you you have a very impressive web website, JoeGardner.com. People have seen you on TV on uh, Growing a Greener World. Uh, you have a podcast and so much more. You know, it's uh, it's funny, Fred. When people ask me all the time, you know, like that I haven't met before, or maybe aren't aware of me, they say, "Well, what do you do?" And then I I don't know why. 30 years later, I still struggle to answer that question, <laughs> but I'm trying to figure out how to do it succinctly so that it doesn't take 30 seconds, but it's kind of diverse, but it's all related to gardening and gardening education. So all through all forms of media. Yeah. Yeah. You got it all going there and you've, yeah. you've updated everything too. You've moved on from blogs to Instagram and, <laughs> and other things. And you're even, I, I guess, uh, hosting a trip to Europe next year. Yeah, my second in a row. Uh, we're we're going to different places. My first trip was uh, this May to England, ironically, to London and all about. And so I just, you know, in, in the timing of this, it's been interesting to, to have go, having gone to England for the first time ever just a couple months ago and standing there, you know, on the mall of Buckingham Palace and all of that it was fascinating. But we want to make up for lost time. And I say we, my wife and I, because, you know, forever I've been traveling for my television shows domestically all over the country, but rarely taking my wife with me because we're in work mode and that just takes a different focus. And it's not like being on vacation. Let me just say that because I sometimes forget where I even am. So now in the latter years, we're uh, we're making up for that and doing some garden tours through a company called Earthbound Expeditions. And each each year I can pick where I want to go and how many trips I want to take. And, and they organize and take care of all the details so my wife likes that and i like that and so we're going to go to northern Ili- northern italy and southern france um in a year from now oh very good that's yeah. nice i think yeah. if i was going to do one of those i'd want to go to scotland but it would, then it would just yeah. be tours of single malt scotch distilleries <laughs> so probably not well there's some of that mixed in you know they it's not just gardening <laughs> yes yeah well it has to be and indeed all right i you know your schedule exhausts me 
You Me are. Too. <laughs> you are always doing something. I, I, I'm amazed that you had time to write a vegetable gardening book that uh, profiles uh, 40 of your uh, favorite crops. But what intrigues me about the book the most is the first half of the book mm-hmm. and uh, all the things you do, your basic theories of gardening and, and practices when it comes to gardening. There's just yeah. so much there. And I listened to the podcast that uh, you hosted, but you were the guest on uh, talking about your your new book. And right towards the beginning, you uh, uttered a phrase that raised a flag in my mind. And you said the soil food web. Mm -hmm. And immediately I thought Elaine Ingham and the soil food web. And if people don't know who Elaine Ingham is, she's a microbiologist who has uh, basically promoted, uh, shall we say, kinder, gentler use of the soil. In a lot mm-hmm. of situations, she's the one that mm-hmm. convinced me to uh, get rid of uh, my uh, rototiller and get a chipper shredder. Yeah, nice. <laughs> well, that makes perfect sense when you're trying to build up the soil. Yeah, it does. And a lot of what you talk about on the TV show and uh, on your podcast, too, it's very familiar to me uh, mm-hmm. because it's all about the soil. It is all about the soil. I say take, take, you know, the, for every dollar that you have to spend on your garden, put 90 cents of it into the soil because you're, you want to feed the soil. You want to, you want to provide the nutrients to the soil because that is the soil food web. That's a living network. It's a whole other community down there with billions and billions of organisms that are creating the environment for the plants to thrive. But we need to give the soil, the microorganisms in the soil, what they need to thrive or at least help them with that. And so, uh, building up the soil health and, Maintaining a constant focus on that is really one of, if not the most important jobs we have as organic or no-till gardeners. Yeah, no-till gardening and cover cropping is now becoming very big in California agricultural circles, as it should be. But for the home gardener, how practical is no-till gardening? Because they're doing it in limited spaces. I think it's very practical. Yeah, I think it's very practical because even like in a raised bed environment, which is where I do most of my food growing, you know, I've got these nice big raised beds, but it's hard not to sometimes disturb the soil even a little bit. But I certainly don't see the need to bring any sort of tiller in there. And to the extent that I even mess with my soil uh, is I use a broad fork, which is just kind of Mm -hmm. a, a wide, thick pitchfork, essentially. And I just open up space in the soil once a year. Prior to top dressing, and then I come in right behind it with some good homemade compost, which goes down into those openings I just created. But I'm not tilling because when I'm tilling, you know, whether I'm doing it in an in-ground bed or a raised bed or wherever that may be, you're really mixing up that soil to a fine texture. And so you're releasing a lot of the nitrogen that was in the soil, plus you're disturbing the networks that have been there, and you're burning up that carbon and just... Too many things that you don't need to do when when you're feeding the soil, the microorganisms will come get what you put on top. You know, if it's like it's like a cake where you're putting icing on top, but in this case, you know, the icing works its way down into the cake part via the microorganisms and the earthworms and the soil food web and all the organisms that are there. And that's what you want. Those deposits that we make with our compost are working their way down into the soil thanks to the help that we have from all those living organisms. And we need those deposits every year because if we don't, our bank account, as I sort of liken it to, would be depleted because of all the withdrawals by the plants of the nutrients. And so we're coming to provide reinforcements with those soil amendments each year. I do it several times a year. I've been hearing more and more from people who are adapting the strategy of matching the compost to what they're growing. If they're growing annuals, they're going to use 
a bacterially based microbial product like uh, food mm-hmm. waste, like kitchen compost. Mm-hmm. Whereas if they're growing trees and shrubs, it's chipped and shredded tree branches. It is intriguing. I, I find that to be a little potentially intimidating for people. For for many of the people that I work with, just getting them to compost is uh, my first priority. And for many people, they don't compost because they're intimidated by just what you said. You know, gosh, oh my gosh, do I need to do fungi based or bacterial based? And what? How do I do that? And what about those ratios? And is it three to one or? which is which and the greens and the browns. What I'm trying to do for people is demystify and uncomplicate the whole process. And if it's a matter of just breaking down organic matter from the kitchen and from your garden into a homogenous biodegraded mix that has plenty of both beneficial fungi and bacteria so that whatever the needs of the plants are, that's in the soil, then that's good enough. And that's really the method I subscribe to uh, myself because I would love to have the time to be a little more refined in, in how I do it. But with the results that I get, I'm, I'm not complaining and it, it works for me. And I want, I want people to feel like, you know, go back to the, my book, Fred, and just how I wrote it and what I wrote. I want people to, to be encouraged, not intimidated by the process. And I want them to feel like it's doable and accessible and not intimidating. And so I want them to do as I do, you know, not do as I say versus do as I do. I want them to do as I do. And what I do is try to keep it as simple as possible. Certainly I could go more complicated, but I haven't found the need to yet. And I, and I don't want to make people feel like they do either. You've heard me talk about the benefits of Smart Pots, the original award-winning fabric container. Smart Pots are sold around the world and are proudly made 100% right here in the USA. Smart Pots is the oldest and still the best of all the fabric plant containers that you might find. Many of the imitators are selling cheaply made fabric pots that fall apart quickly. Not Smart Pots. There are satisfied smart pot owners who have been using the same smart pots for over a decade, actually approaching 20 years. When you choose smart pot fabric containers, you know you'll be having a superior growing experience with the best product on the market. And your plants will appreciate smart pots too. Because of the 1 million microscopic holes in smart pots, your soil will have better drainage and the roots will be healthier. They won't be going round and round on the outside of the soil ball like you see in so many plastic pots. The air pruning qualities of smart pots creates more branching of the roots, filling more of the usable soil in the smart pot. Smart pots are available at independent garden centers and select Ace and True Value hardware stores nationwide. To find a store near you or to buy online, visit smartpots.com slash Fred. And don't forget that slash Fred part. On that page are details about how, for a limited time, you can get 10% off your Smart Pot order by using the coupon code FRED. Use it at checkout from the Smart Pot store. Visit smartpots.com slash FRED for more information about the complete line of Smart Pots lightweight, colorful, award-winning fabric containers. And don't forget that special Farmer FRED 10% discount. Smart Pots, the original award-winning fabric planter. Go to smartpots.com slash Fred. Let's get back to our conversation with TV gardener Joe Lample. One of the simple things you do, and it's something I've been doing for years, and it really works, and you talk about this in your book, is your mulching process. It's just ground-up leaves that you put mm. on top of your raised beds. 
Gosh, it brings me so much pleasure every time I go to the uh, leaf corral, which is what I call it, which <laughs> is the collection point for my fall leaves that I've just shredded up from the collection of about three weekends in November of my neighborhoods in the area where I'm loading up their brown recyclable bags because all the homeowners associations around here require that they get their leaves off their property or out of sight, I guess, at least. But for me, fortunately, they're putting them in these bags that are on their curb and then it's free for the taking. And I let people know in advance if if they want me to come pick them up to let me know. And on those Saturdays, I'll have their address in my phone and I'll go pick them up. And literally, Fred, in a weekend... I can have 300 bags in the course of half a day, just making lots of trips close by. It adds up fast. I get 20, 20 bags a load. And if they're a mile or less away, I mean, I'm there and back in a few minutes. And next thing you know, I'm on to the next one. And before you know it, it adds up. But anyway, I shred those. I put them in my leaf corral and I let those break down over the following five or six months. And then in spring, they get, they get top dressed into my garden as the mulch. And it's by then. I just love the feel of semi-composted shredded leaves, and I love the look of it. I love how they work. I love how they spread into the garden, how you can manipulate them, and how they already look like they're going to work the moment they hit the soil. So it's and they're free, and it's free, by the way. Oops, that's a that's not a bad thing. And you're keeping them out of the landfill for me because all of those bags were destined to the landfill. Unfortunately, they're not even going to a recyclable or compostable facility. They're going straight to the landfill. So I'm I'm you know doing something good there too so it's all good i take it one step further than you because i have more free time than you do i will actually go to my neighbor's house and say can i rake your leaves and oh they go, uh, sure why not <laughs> i've had plenty of people where i put the ad out to say can i come get your bagged leaves and i say it that way on purpose because i'm tired of getting those same emails oh you can come get my leaves they're not bad but you can feel free to come rake them up <laughs> Not not that I would mind that, but it's not practical. So good for you. That's good exercise for sure, especially in the fall. It's a great time of year to do it. Well, you're in the business of gardening. I, <laughs> I, I'm doing this for fun. <laughs> yeah, that, yeah, there's that. <laughs> yeah, yeah, there is that. In your book, which is a wonderful book, too. I, I love the pictures in it, the vegetable gardening book. You have many, many pictures of your raised beds. Tell us about your raised beds. How big are they? What are they constructed out of? And then we'll get into tomato cages. Yay. <laughs> okay. So the beds themselves are untreated cedar timbers, and they're six by six in dimension. So they're nice, thick, bulky. You can sit on them timbers, and they're stacked three high. So that's an 18-inch high bed. And the length is 12 feet, and the width is most of my beds are four feet wide and four of them are three feet wide so it fits perfectly the way my garden is laid out it's perfectly proportioned that way i just love the dimensions of those beds and somebody sent me a message the other day on instagram and they they wanted to know about my beds and then they i sent them the information and they said well now that you've had them for 10 years what would you do different and I, I it was an easy answer i said i wouldn't do anything different i love the layout i love the beds i love everything about my garden the one thing I would have done that I wish I one thing I wish I would have done is put hardware cloth across the bottom because two years ago mm. moles started finding their way in burrowing underneath and into my smorgasbord of earthworms and so forth in the soil and now they think they've got an all you can eat buffet and it's to my detriment. But anyway, so those are my beds. I love them and they've served me well, super productive, and um would not change anything else about them. Do you have drip irrigation in those beds? 
I do. I have, I love to hand water. Uh, so I have them all configured with individual custom, individual spigots in each bed. Each bed has a dedicated spigot. And so depending on what I'm growing and when I'm growing it, I have the opportunity to put in soaker hoses or drip irrigation, depending on what I'm planting in that bed. And they each have individual battery operated timers. So I can customize each bed according to what I'm growing. But in the fall, I usually don't even hook it up. I, I take it down because I'm going to be doing that anyway for the winter time. But in the fall, you know, we get decent amount of rain and I'm not traveling as much in the fall. I'm home to, to hand irrigate with my watering one, which is my favorite way to water because I'm out there with the plants and I'm looking and I'm standing still and I'm paying attention and I'm giving the plants exactly the water they need. So all of the above, Fred, but um, drip soaker and uh, watering one. Yeah, we should point out that you live outside Atlanta, Georgia. So mm-hmm. the weather, tell us about living in USDA Zone 8. What sort of weather patterns do yeah. you have? Well, for right now, tomorrow it might be Zone 8. Currently, it's still 7B last time I checked. But, oh, okay. uh, it could easily be 8. It feels that way. This summer, it sure did. And, uh, you know, the beauty of it is we are able to grow year-round. That's only probably going to get easier. But, you know, the summer is tough here because you have the heat and you have the humidity and you got those afternoon thunder showers. And so if you like growing tomatoes, even as a champion of growing them, you kind of get tired of maintaining them in July because, you know, the diseases have come on by then. The pests have found them and you're spending more time maintaining your tomatoes than anything else. And that's dead, I, that said, I still grow 60 something tomatoes every year. I'm not sure why, but I just can't stop myself. And. I never regret it except in the midst of dealing with all the cutback, but then you forget about that. So that's the summer's challenging, mainly for the pests and diseases because of the heat and humidity. And it's, and, and for me, working in the garden every day because we film for my television show and we film for my online gardening academy. We're doing online course videos all the time during, throughout the growing season, which means we're in the, out there in the summertime. This year, Fred, it was hotter than any other year that I can ever remember. And this is me filming for television gardening hosting for over 20 years every day in the summertime, you know, for these three uh, series that I've hosted for my life in television. I've been outside in the midst of the heat down here in Atlanta all those years, but I've never, ever felt like I did this year outside in the heat. It just, it was oppressive this year more than anything else. So it was weird. It was, I, and I remember telling my crew that many times this summer. It's like, I can't believe it's 830 in the morning and I'm already dripping wet and a t-shirt, but it is what it is. That said, you, you, all that goes away in the fall. It's, it's cool. The pest and disease pressure is gone. The humidity is gone. Uh, you get to grow your cool season crops. And those are some of my favorites. Most of the, my favorite crops are actually cool season crops with the exception of what, you know, the tomatoes in the summertime and the peppers. I love the fall the best. And, um, so we're thankful. I'm thankful that we have that time. And then I, because our winters aren't that severe, much of what I grow for my fall season, I can overwinter even without cover. But if I want to add some, you know, frost protection, I can do that with, you know, fleece or whatever. They're still going in the, in the spring when they start to bolt and they're, you know, going to seed. I have to pull them out to make room because it's time to plant summer again. So it's not a bad problem. Yeah, here in the West, uh, we don't have the humidity issues you have back there, but certainly the heat and the sun issues have certainly changed gardening. And we're seeing that currently with tomatoes and peppers, especially there's more sunburn, there's more uh-huh. sun related diseases, there's cat facing going on. Yeah. And you're wondering, okay, how do we deal with this next year then? Do we plant in more shade? What do we do? 
Yeah, that's such a good question. And it's interesting that this question is coming up a lot more lately. And, you know, with my, with our online gardening academy, we have a lot of students and we, we have like weekly Zoom calls. We call them office hours, but we have students all across the country, many out in the West Coast and the Southwest, the desert Southwest and Texas, especially. And everyone is just struggling. They, this was a really hard year for a lot of people because of the heat. And so, this conversation was coming up all the time and many people were resorting to shade cloth around their plants to try to knock down some of that heat in the middle of the day. And they were experimenting with that for the first time this year. And, you know, there were some aha moments from that. And many people thought that they would wrap their plants with a shade cloth and only to find out that it actually exacerbated the problem because mm -hmm. the shade cloth was eliminating the, the airflow, the free airflow. And it was actually bringing, holding in some of the heat that wouldn't have been there had they provided some spacing. And so they rectified the problem in the course of the growing season by finding a way to suspend the shade cloth over the plants with some free flow air in the meantime. And that, that seemed to really make the difference. And, and they were using roughly 50% shade cloth. And it knocked the temperature down. I think the average was five to seven degrees and it made a d big difference. And so that's one of the things. And then, of course, more frequent drip irrigation, pinpointing the, the water where you want more frequently. And for longer periods of time. And, you know, we're, we're learning as we go. It's, it's more than ever have we really had to deal with what do we do now? This generation of parenting to kids who are grown up with nothing, they've grown up with their phones in front of them. It's like we as parents really didn't have that situation. So we can't, we're not really good counselors at, you know, well, what did I do then? You know, cause we, we didn't have the chance to do that. So we're uh, figuring out as we go, I guess is the point of what I'm trying to make. I can see more. PVC structures over raised beds in the future to be able to give you that airflow and yet provide more shade. Yeah, yeah. In fact, I even tried. I almost did that myself this year. And um, fortunately, I, I wised up because I didn't. I was going to do it on a Saturday afternoon when I was trying to get some protection over some plants. At the same time, I was buying some livestock panel to provide some deer protection around the plants. And then I just started thinking, well, why don't I just bend the livestock panel because it's very flexible and you can create a hoop out of it over the top of my plants and then just drop shade cloth over that. So I, I basically killed two birds with one stone with that accidentally, but you know, it worked. But to your point, I think the PVC is going to be more ubiquitous than ever in the garden year round in the wintertime for, you know, the, the frost protection. And then in the summertime with the shade cloth from hardening off all the way through knocking off that heat in the middle of the summer. Want to start the backyard fruit and nut orchard of your dreams, but maybe you don't know where to begin. Or maybe you're currently growing fruit and nut trees and you've got a million questions, such as what are the tastiest fruits to grow? Where can I go to buy some of these delectable fruit and nut trees you've been reading about? And then how do you care for all of these trees, including planting, pruning, and harvesting? I've got one online stop in mind for you where all these questions you might have will get answered. It's DaveWilson.com. That's Dave Wilson Nursery, the nation's largest wholesaler of fruit and nut trees for the backyard garden. They have planting tips, taste test results, and links to nurseries in your area that carry Dave Wilson fruit trees. 
Click on the Home Garden tab at DaveWilson.com for all of these links, including a link to their years of informative videos about growing fruit and nut trees that they've posted on the Dave Wilson Nursery YouTube channel. Start the backyard orchard of your dreams at DaveWilson.com. Let's get back to our conversation with TV gardener Joe Lample. For probably the last 30 years, I've used the same tomato cages, which is concrete reinforcement wire. It's yeah. sold in four by five foot uh, sheets. You just bend it into a circle and secure yeah. them and they last forever. You've yeah. taken it up a notch with your tomato cages by using livestock panels, which is a much thicker metal and mm-hmm. you need bolt cutters to cut it. Yeah. But if you get a nice size bolt cutter, it cuts like butter, really, because you have those long handles and they're not so thick that you can't, you know, even somebody that wouldn't say that they're strong at all can still cut right through it. I did that, Fred, because I had those same trellises that you had and they work great. But when you have 60 something tomato <laughs> plants and each one needs a cage and you know at the end of the season you've got to put those things somewhere and they've got a memory so if you try to uncouple them and lay them out flat they want to roll back up and then you're stacking 60 of those things however you can wherever you can and for me that just I don't have that ability and then for television and all the media we create I really wanted something that stood out that had kind of an architectural appeal to it too. So these, because they're galvanized metal, they don't rust. They're square. When you put the two 90 degree panels together, they, they come together as a square and they're, they're super strong. They are not going anywhere because the way that you cut the bottom, they, they make stakes that go Mm -hmm. into the ground. Nothing's going to knock them over. And um, they are amazing. And from the feedback I've gotten from people that have, you know, seen the posts from around the world and they've built them in their gardens, nobody's complaining and they rave about them. And it makes me very happy to know that, you know, people are really enjoying these things. I did it out of a need to just say, I'm tired of messing with cages. I need something that really works. And living on a small farm, I had those livestock panels around. I just grabbed one one day and I said, I bet I could do something with this. And I'm not a very creative person, but... Give me a, enough time and I can come up with something. And that's, that's what came with these tomato cages. And I, um, that's one of my best non-regrettable moments in the garden was coming up with those cages. And you can find directions on how to do it on page 242 of Joe Lample's <laughs> book, The Vegetable Gardening Book. Right. And, uh, for instructions on uh, making the ultimate tomato cages. One thing you, that you stressed in the podcast talking about your book on your own podcast was cleaning your tools and how fastidious you are about cleaning tools. But if you're trying to reduce diseases in your garden, boy, oh boy, before you put your tools away, you better clean them. You you really should. Uh, you know, having a sharp blade, having a rust-free tool, having one that doesn't overwinter pathogens on it. And it may be hard for people to get their head around the fact that that can happen, but it can it's a really good practice when you feel like you're going to put your tools up for the year, for the season, knock the dirt off, get your steel wool out, whatever it is to clean them up, shine them up. First time I really did that fastidiously was when I was doing a video for somebody that wanted to have a demonstration on how to de-rust your tools and clean them up. And so I pulled all my tools, you know, because I had plenty of them that had a little bit of stuff on them. And uh, I was so happy at the end of that process, showing the different ways that you could clean them up and you get the rust off through the various processes. And they looked, you know, they almost looked brand new again. And it was just 
a proud moment to know that when you have good quality tools and you take care of them, they'll literally last a lifetime if you don't lose them. And besides the fact that they're clean and they operate well because you've sharpened them up to get the rust off and remove the potential pathogenic issues on there, get, get you off to the best start going forward. Not only mentally are you really feeling good about your tools and they're easy to work with and they're not stiff and they're, you know, lubed and all that, they're clean. That's the best thing you can do. One of the best things you can do at the start of the season. No, don't want you don't want to handicap yourself going in. Yeah, and maybe wrap yellow or red electrical tape on the handles so you can spot them laying on the ground. Absolutely. In your book, you talk about your super simple seven step maintenance routine, and I really like the one about keeping some big containers handy for you to throw stuff in. Yes. Yes, I'm, I'm pausing because it just seems so simple, but it's such a thing. Let's face it, we're going to have weeds that we need to get out of the garden beds. We need to cut back dead or diseased material, and it's got to go somewhere. For a lot of us, there's only so much time that we have to spend in the garden when we're out there. And when we're in the moment, we've got that momentum and we want to keep the pace going. But when you stop because you don't have that place to put that stuff in the moment, well, now you're putting your tools down, you're heading off in a different direction. You might see something else you need to do, and then you get off on a detour or a tangent or that chasing that squirrel. And next thing you know, your hours have gone by, and you never got back to where you started. <laughs> and it just makes a big difference. The, to me, the momentum is a big thing, and just feeling like you've got what you need, when you need it, where you need it, is such a no-brainer for me. It wasn't until I made a real concerted effort to make a point of making sure I always had something in the garden ready to go. And now I, now the stuff lives there for that very reason. You know, gardening is not hard, but it can sometimes be not easy either, just because it's not always convenient because we're not as organized as we want to be. And those are little things that we can do to make that more streamlined. Well, I think it's because, too, we're getting older and we get a little bit wiser and we don't want to trudge back to the garage to look for something. So we finally figure out, oh, let's uh, leave it in the yard. It's like people who keep spare tools in the yard. They've taken an old uh, outdoor mailbox, put it on a post somewhere in the garden, and they keep their hand tools inside that metal mailbox. I'll tell you, I've done that. And it's it's something we've I go to that more than my mail mailbox, you know, because <laughs> there's so much thing. I got a, one of those jumbo mailboxes and I started thinking about what are the most important things that I use the most and what are the things that I would need in case something happened? So, you know, there's the Band-Aids and the antiseptic, and there's the sunscreen, and there's sunglasses, and there's, of course, my pruners and my micro snips and my soil knife and plant tags and markers and, you know, on and on. And that's just from memory. And there's other stuff in there that's so full, it, it stands to get, it benefits from a cleaning out every once in a while because you keep shoving stuff in there. And, oh, yeah, of course, your favorite gloves, of course. Yes. <laughs> yeah. Maybe but, a um, hat too. <laughs> and a hat for sure. Yeah. So yes, it's, uh, it's like one of those moments where you think, what took me so long to get around to doing this? And I want to come up with something that's not a mailbox because it looks a little funny in there. I mean, I'm used to it, but I'd like something that is a little more clever, but it, I mean, a mailbox works as good as anything because it's rainproof and it has a nice tight fitting lid. So there's nothing wrong with it, but I'm someday hoping to get a brainstorm to come up with something that Maybe I have to make it. I don't know. But the, it can't beat a, the simplicity of a mailbox. Speaking of uh, brainstorms or having that moment, did you ever have an aha moment in the garden that took you down a different path? <laughs> yeah, I'm I, I'm sure I've had a lot of them. I feel like I've had one recently. 
And uh, well, here's one, a reminder. I mean, this isn't going to be the most earth shattering news, but back to the tomatoes for a second. By the mid to late July down here, they're, they're just, they're worn out. You know, they've been producing like crazy. I've been maintaining them like crazy. I'm tired. They're looking tired. And we have a really hot month ahead with August. But I have learned over time that if you are patient and you're, and you don't throw in the towel and you don't pull them out, 50 50, they'll come around. They'll, you know, they'll work through the pest and disease cycles and the climate will get more favorable. And next thing you know, they're doing really good things again. They've rebounded. And so an aha moment for me is on that one where I've just said, I'm just going to come back to that one later. And next thing you know, it's weeks later. But by then, it's looking so much better than it was at about the time you were thinking about pulling it out. And now it's producing again. And because of those that I left in the ground, I've got ripe tomatoes producing on my plants. Today, just today, I was out there this morning picking cherry tomatoes off a plant that Probably shouldn't, wouldn't have been there had I pulled it out when I thought about it. But because I didn't, I am enjoying fresh, delicious tomatoes every morning when I'm out there doing my chores. And I will now because it's going to produce until frost kills it back. So I've got until almost Halloween to enjoy tomatoes. We are seeing the same thing here. We had about mm. of uh, over 110 degrees for five days in a row, and yeah. that knocked back production considerably. And it's only now that we're back into the 80s that the tomato plants are starting to set flowers again. And I know for the cherry tomatoes, they will produce, but for the beefsteaks, well, it, it's the end of the season. Yeah, I mean, yeah, you've got some time for them to produce from flower and get growing. So I'm with you there, too. That said, I I have a beef one beefsteak left that's um, in all forms of growth at this point with pick, uh, ones I picked off today and others that are coming on. And so we'll see. But that's just part of what I love about gardening. It's never boring. It's always changing. No two days are the same. And for me this season, having tomatoes this late in the season is something that I rarely see because I've pulled them all out. Well, I, I hate to ask this question because all gardening is local, but what is that beefsteak tomato variety? It is a... Um, Homestead. It's a homestead variety. Okay. That beef. Yeah. And, uh, I thought it was something else until I went down and looked at the tag and it surprised me because I was thinking it was a, it was a different variety, but it's not. It's a homestead. So that I've made note that that will be going, uh, that's going to be a go to for me for longevity. <laughs> it seems to be extra hardy, resistant to a lot of the things the other plants succumb to. Yeah. Especially with all the changes going on. Yeah. W- one aha moment I've noticed, uh, over the last decade or so, I mean, I've done, what, 30, 40 years of, of gardening on the radio. Mm-hmm. And it used to be the questions that would come in would begin with the phrase, what should I buy to solve whatever problem? And now what they're saying is, what can I do mm-hmm. to control this problem? So we've gone from buying something to doing something, from eradicating something to controlling something. And boy, that's mm-hmm. a step in the right direction. That is a huge step. I love that. And I've noticed that too. And when I, like you, back in the day, you know, you know, what can I spray on this? What can I put on this mm-hmm. to kill it? Thanks to the work that many of us have done to help educate people that there's a kinder, gentler way. And if you understand that of all the bugs in your garden, only 1% are pests and 99% are either beneficial or neutral. So why would you put something on your garden that's non-selective that's going to kill everything when only 1% is bad? Beating that drum over and over and over and over again by many, many people is getting through and through all forms of media too. And as new gardeners are coming on, they're not, you know, a lot of times their parents weren't gardeners because they were 
you know, both working and they didn't really have time to garden, or maybe they weren't reaching for the chemical bottle right off the bat. But for those that, for that generation who had parents that that's what they did, that's what that younger, that next generation did too, because that's what they knew from just watching what their parents did. But this generation, many cases, their parents, they weren't that reaching for that bottle. So now these people are just starting from scratch, fresh. And it's not even something they even think about right off the bat. Like you said, they just want to know what they need to do to manage the situation, right. working with beneficials, or how do I how do I deal with this? But they're not even prompting with the question of what can I put on it or spray on it to kill it. That just doesn't enter the equation anymore. And I just love that. It's been a long time coming, but I feel like we're rounded we've rounded the corner and then some. Wondering what to do with all that end-of-the-season corn? How about some fresh corn soup? On this week's Beyond the Garden Basics newsletter and podcast, Master Gardener and professional chef Andy McDonald has the chilled corn soup recipe that's rather special. It uses the corn cobs that usually get tossed. Sound interesting? Find a subscription link to the newsletter in today's show notes or visit our website, GardenBasics.net. That's where you can sign up to have the free Beyond the Garden Basics newsletter and podcast delivered to your inbox each Friday. Also at GardenBasics.net, you can listen to any of our previous editions of the Garden Basics podcast, and you can read a transcript of the podcast episode that you're listening to now. For current newsletter subscribers, look for the fresh chilled corn soup recipe in the next Beyond the Garden Basics newsletter. It's coming out the morning of Friday, September 23rd. It'll be in your email. Take a deeper dive into gardening and cooking your food that you grew with the Beyond the Garden Basics newsletter. And it's free. Find the link in today's show notes or at GardenBasics.net. Let's get back to our conversation with TV gardener Joe Lample. Even though your book is entitled The Vegetable Gardening Book, you point out that to attract beneficial insects, you have to have the flowers that attract them, or as I like to call them, the good bug hotels. Hmm. And there are plenty that you can plant in the garden. What are some of your favorite uh, good bug hotels to plant in Georgia? Well, I, I just, you can't deny the zinnias. They, it's a magnet for all kinds of pollinators that are coming in. And I grow a lot of milkweed too. And that is huge for the, all types of bees and wasps and syrphid flies and just every kind of thing that you would want to come visit your garden. But a lot, over the past few years, we've really been introducing a lot of uh, ornament, a lot of perennial, native perennials into the garden, a lot of salvia, some native asters and things, some joe pie, some solidago, and just different things that I have throughout my property and my landscape, my native plant landscape beds. But now that I'm bringing them in dedicating space around the interior garden borders, around my raised beds, it's just more vibrant than I've ever seen it. It's more beautiful than it's ever been. And so we're dedicating more space uh, I've got a farm manager that's a really great flower person. And so she's really, I've commissioned her to really focus on making the garden about 50 50 flowers and edibles next year. We've got the room for it and the flowers won't really work their way into the raised bed so much, but we've got unused space around the perimeter, interior perimeter of my garden for those flowers. And so, um, that's going to be a nice addition in many ways, but primarily for attracting more pollinators to help with the pest control. 
when you have the good guys on your side, you don't need to be buying any sort of pesticides to spray. That's mm-hmm. and you have to be patient too. You yeah. have to you have to look at those aphids and say, "I'll watch you for a while. Let's see what happens." And usually the ladybugs, the uh, the lace wings, they will find those aphids and help you control them. You just need a little bit of patience. And if you don't have the patience, then use your garden hose. Mm-hmm. I'm glad you said patience because I was going to say it if you didn't, but you said it right right then. One thing that's amazing to me, and I've, I've learned a long time ago to be patient, but it's really affirming when you see those aphids on your plants. If you take the time to just look on those plants beyond the aphids and just look for the lady beetle larva or the lace wings, they're there. They're probably there. And if they're not there, they probably will be there soon if you give them a chance. And that's where the patience part comes in. But once they're there, they don't waste any time getting down to business. And they're ravenous, especially the the larvae. The, the non-adult mm-hmm. lady beetles eat more aphid per volume than the than the parents. And then you've got the help from all the other beneficial insects, too. And it's a beautiful thing. And Mother Nature really has it figured out. But we get, we're, you know, we're so impatient, especially in this day and age when everything is instant everything you want instant results in your garden too but that's that's the place to really kind of go to slow down and take a breath and that includes with your pest control growing plants is like raising kids the benefit to plants is they don't talk back amen to that <laughs> you mentioned on your website joegardner.com about growing beets in containers when every other source about growing beets from seeds is plant them directly into the garden mm-hmm there's nothing like trying it to see. And um, I've been growing them in uh, cell trays for a lot of years now and then transplanting them into the garden. And I'm the guy that wants to just see how it goes and try it differently. And so, like you said, rarely do you find anybody that says you can plant it either way. But I I love starting seeds ahead of the growing season. So I want to grow everything from in containers or cell packs or whatever. So beets is part of that. And when I planted them outside and I got amazing beets from it, you know, it was like, well, this is easy. I mean, it, it really works. So I've done a vid- videos on it to talk about that's really the easiest way for me to grow beets. But this year, a couple weeks ago, for my uh, big course that we're working on that launches next spring, it's organic vegetable gardening, I'm showing everybody in the course how to grow the Fab 40 from seed to harvest. So we're bringing the cameras out literally every three times a week, all from when we started in March until we stop sometime late this year. We're documenting every aspect, every phase of growing the warm and cool season crops. And so just two weeks ago, I sowed seeds of beets into the garden directly, and I transplanted beet seedlings that I'd started inside. And we're going to see how they both do when it's time to harvest are the are the transplants going to beat up and root up and we're going to be able to have big beets out of it or are the ones that i direct sowed going to do better and so i'm all i mean i'm not set on one way or the other i just want people to see what happens from our documenting the process in real time and that's part of the fun of it is we're going to have a lot of successes but there are things that aren't going to go according to plan and they're going to see that too but i want them to see side-by-side comparisons in real time too as i do them in my garden and we're going to document that. So I, th- I think it's it's not one or the other. It's it's either or or both. How tall are these beet transplants when you do transplant them? They're about uh, three inches tall, and they they have a bit of an extended stem below the leaf set going down into the roots. But that's typical of cool season plants that you start inside. They tend to be a little bit what people might consider leggy, but it's just that point between the roots and the 
the part where the leaves are coming out. But then when I put them into the ground, I just go ahead and put some soil back. I just put soil back around. So in the ground, when you look at them, they look like they're upright. And I buried about an inch of that stem below the rosette area. And they do fine. And they beat up well. How big are the containers that you're starting the beets in? I use 50-cell trays. So they're about one and a half by one and a half inches, I believe. You live dangerously. (laughs) You know, I've done this for a long time. And um, I, I, I let them grow out in their cells for four weeks. And then I put them outside late August, early September. And... You know, it's just done well. They've done really well for years. I have to take issue with you with something you said on your podcast when you were talking about your book. When you were talking about getting away from junk food, you used the word popcorn. Now, as a popcorn grower myself, Mm. I love homegrown popcorn. There's just so many varieties, heirloom varieties that you can plant that have actual popcorn taste, unlike these uh, huge styrofoam balls that they sell as popcorn in this day and age. But popcorn being a whole grain, it's uh, plenty of uh, good fiber in it, and it's it's what you put on the popcorn that's the junk food. I'll grant you that 100%. When I even said it, I heard myself say that. I said, you know, that wasn't the best example and I should, if I had more time, I would have gone back and said, well, really, it's not the popcorn, it's the butter and all the other stuff. Yeah, I would have changed that if I had gone back and, and done it. I agree with you. <laughs> but, yeah, but there are things, there are spices you could put on it to, to uh, mitigate the lack of butter and salt. There's cinnamon, for example, that yeah, you could use yeah. if you wanted to. Yeah, there's good fiber in that popcorn. It's a good thing. Yeah, so, it is. It, it's, yeah, a re- right. it's a real food. It's not out of a factory in New Jersey. Amen. Right. Yes. <laughs> all right. Uh, one more question. You, you talked about, uh, not being fond of okra, but okra flowers are beautiful. <laughs> They're totally beautiful. Uh, the buttery yellow hibiscus flower of the okra. And let me clarify, as far as not a fan of okra, the reason I'm not a fan of it is it's massive in the garden, which really it's very stately. I have it in the corner of my garden where it, it's the it's the western backside of my garden. So the sun doesn't allow it to shade anything else out of my garden. So it has a dedicated spot. It gets very tall. Even the four and five foot varieties in an 18 inch high raised bed. I have to stand on the edge of the bed to harvest at this point my okra that I purposely planted the smaller, shorter varieties so that I could not get up on my bed. I don't mind, but it's a little precarious. What it is, Fred, for me, it's, it's getting into the plant to harvest. It's the sharpness of the leaves and the irritant on the leaves. But I use the farmer's defense sleeves on my arms to protect my mm. – you know what those are? I will get some. <laughs> oh, gosh. Let me tell you, I, I'd love to be a sp- – you know, they've got a great product, and I have no, no interest in their product other than the fact that I'm a huge fan of it. But they're just um, – basically, the nylon – I don't know what the material is, polyester, whatever, the stretchy material that you can just slip on over your arm – all the way up your arm, and you can reach in there, and you won't get scratched up by your cucurbits or yes. your okra or any of that stuff. And you just pull them off when you're done, and it's the it's a beautiful. And they have these really cool patterns too. It's almost it's like fun to wear them, and you feel you feel pretty cool when you got them on. Yeah, They're I know. Great. If I'm working on the corn or in the zucchini patch, uh, I will usually yes. slip on a, a hiking long sleeve hiking shirt. But you just yep. gave me a great idea. I've got some uh, removable bicycle sleeves that fit over your arms that you can take off uh, when the weather gets Same. hot. That might work as well. Exactly. Exactly. That arm protection is huge for that kind of stuff. Yeah, that's another thing you, that happens as you get older and you do more in the garden. You you start doing things that make more sense. <laughs> is there yeah. anything we left off that uh, you want to talk about? 
I guess I would just close with just because of the season that we're in, whoever's listening to this, if you're not doing a fall garden, even if you're in a part of the country where you feel like it just gets too cold too soon or you haven't started yet, there are things that you can grow outside that will grow quickly, that you can enjoy, that you can't grow in the summertime. And you're missing an opportunity to extend your season and spend time in the most pleasant time of the year away from the heat and the pests and the diseases and all those things that you, you know, frustrate you during the summertime. This is that time where you get to grow things and taste things and eat from the garden, fresh food that you don't get to partake in in the summertime. So for those that haven't done it yet, please give it a try. And there's still time to do it now. But if you don't do it this year, do it next year. So I guess I'd leave you with that, Fred. I'm sure there's a lot of other things I'll think about after we sign off, but that's one. The cool season garden is also more nutritious, too. Yes. Yes. There's that. All right. There's that. The website is joegardner.com. It's Joe Lample. Star of the uh, public television show Growing a Greener World and, of course, is uh, one of the top-rated gardening podcasts, The Joe Gardner Show. And uh, that's been going on for, what, almost 300 episodes now? Yeah, I know. Exactly. Gosh, we're coming up on 300 episodes, which is, I think, like five years, something like that. They haven't missed a week. Congratulations on that, too. Yeah, thank you. It's it's the most time-consuming thing we do, but... I can't imagine not doing it. It's it's a lot of people depend on it, and I love doing it. And I love it, too, because I can edit what I say, <laughs> Un- yes. unlike radio. Yeah, right. we sound brilliant when we when we put that finished product out there. That's what I tell everybody. I'll make us sound both like geniuses. Yep. <laughs> right. Joe Lample, check out the website, joegardner.com. For more information, check out his new book, The Vegetable Gardening Book by Joe Lample. Joe, it's been a pleasure. Thank you so much. Fred, thank you for the opportunity. I I really enjoyed our conversation. Thanks for having me on. We like to answer your garden questions here on the Garden Basics Podcast. Debbie Flower is here, America's favorite retired college horticultural professor. And we get a note from Matt, who lives in eastern Iowa. And he says it's either USDA Zone 4 or 5, depending on the map and or the year. And Matt uh, offers you praise for saying, uh, first, as a science graduate, you have a very informative podcast. I am a longtime gardener. However, this is my first year into fruit tree care on my in-law's farm, where my family and I now also live. So I picked out a few specific fruit episodes to listen to. And thank you for your guests and their knowledge. My question is this. What about cinder blocks, concrete blocks as raised beds? Are they safe for plants? Are they effective for growing? Is there research into their use as raised beds? Are water-based stains or food-safe paints okay to use on the outside to give them a more attractive look? Painting cinder blocks. Yes. My short answer would be yes, they're safe to use and they're certainly available. They're certainly inexpensive. You can modify the shape of your raised bed in many ways, height, diameter, shape, etc. So they're very easy to use that way. But as to, to is there research that backs me up, I could not find any. I found lots of uh, university research sites that said, yes, you can make your raised bed out of uh, cinder blocks, but not anything that had research. A couple of things I think of uh, that you might consider if using concrete block as raised bed for safety reasons. One is they are made from primarily cement, and cement is high in calcium. 
and they've traveled on a truck or whatever, they may have dust all over them. And if that uh, dust with calcium in it gets into your garden, that will affect potentially the pH, meaning the alkalinity or the acidity of your soil. And it could take it into an undesirable range. Calcium makes soil more alkaline. So I'd rinse them off before I planted anything in them. Some cinder blocks contain fly ash, I'm very familiar with fly ash because of some work my father did on incineration. Fly ash is the ashes left over after garbage is burned. Uh, they would take a very long time to leach out of the blocks, I assume, having been told in the past that it takes concrete 30 years to cure. So if you're using new blocks... It'll probably be 30 years before they give up any of their contents. If you're using old blocks, they are more likely to leach the calcium I discussed previously and the potential uh, fly ash contents. Now, not all cinder blocks have fly ash in them. So if you can contact the manufacturer in any way and find out what is in them, that would be very helpful. I did go to an extension site. Thank you. I believe it's Maryland safety materials used uh, for building raised beds. And they suggested you could paint the cinder blocks with polymer paint, which I then had to research. And that's either acrylic or vinyl. Well, so that's plastic. So you could put plastic on them. If I did, I would do it only on the outside. Understand that that's going to break down too. And the more sun it's in, the faster it's going to break down. And then you've introduced plastic into your garden. So uh, the polymer paint, I don't think is such a great idea. I like your idea of food grade stains and uh, uh, dyes. I, I, I don't, I'm not familiar with them. I've made tufa pots in which we got the concrete stain from the hardware store where we bought the cement, but uh, I don't know about its safety in terms of food crops. So I, I don't know that I would use that. Uh, another suggestion, and this is for the inside to prevent the leaching, it's not for the outside for the beauty, is to line it with a pool liner. Uh, that's a thick plastic material that will prevent leaching from the blocks into the soil. Do not line the bottom. You definitely need the drainage, but use the pool liner to prevent that leaching. One thing you may want to line the bottom with if you have the problem of gophers or moles is hardware cloth on the bottom of the raised bed to keep them from burrowing up from underneath. Absolutely. Absolutely, yes. What about using something like uh, landscape fabric on, on the inside of the wall? Landscape fabric is... Uh, so, it's spun fabric. It's not woven. It's spun, if that makes sense. Uh, and it's uh, sold purportedly to prevent weeds from growing into gardens. And what we found over and over and over again is that the weeds just root right into the landscape fabric. If the chemicals, undesirable chemicals from the cinder blocks could dissolve in water, it would not prevent them from getting into the garden. If they're too big for that, the calcium would dissolve in water. If they're too big for that, though, they wouldn't make it through the landscape fabric. So I, I have very mixed... I don't like landscape fabric in the landscape. My thought... 
is that when you go to remove the stubs of uh, the former plants in the raised bed, you're going to be bringing up that landscape fabric with it. Exactly, because the the plants are going to root right into it. And so it's going to be more of a problem than a solution. So, sorry, I don't have an answer for the stains and the dyes, but um, I, I think your idea of using cinder blocks for raised beds is a good one. You'll need some rebar to bang in the ground and put them over so that they don't collapse mid-season. But uh, good luck with that garden. Debbie Flower, thanks for your help. You're welcome, Fred. Garden Basics with Farmer Fred comes out every Tuesday and Friday, and it's brought to you by Smart Pots and Dave Wilson Nursery. Garden Basics, it's available wherever podcasts are handed out. For more information about the podcast, visit our website, gardenbasics.net. And that's where you can find out about the free Garden Basics newsletter, Beyond the Basics. And thank you so much for listening.